Thank you, Ms. Cheryl, for playing for us this morning. As, uh, as I get started, first of all, great to have each of you with us this morning. Uh, it is a blessing to be back together. Obviously, last weekend, uh, the weather was frightful. It was not what we're used to in South Carolina. I will tell you that I think that for the most part, we are used to the way the week turned out. Uh, my kids missed school on Monday because of ice and snow. They had a two-hour delay Tuesday and Wednesday, and then by Friday, it was 77 degrees outside. So if you don't like the weather, it's okay. It's going to change in a day or two anyways, and we'll be fine. Uh, it is a blessing to be able to worship with you this morning, and uh, I was talking with Daly right before we got started, and there were a couple things that we had planned on doing uh, that we weren't able to do, and uh, she actually made the statement, oh, this is going to be the shortest service ever, and what she didn't know is I was still trying to figure out how am I going to get everything in, so now I get to get everything in, so I'm really excited uh, to be in front of you guys and to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, we're going to begin with a passage of Scripture, and I'm going to ask if you would turn in your Bibles to it. It's in Jonah chapter 2. We've been in a series over the past couple weeks looking at the book of Jonah. Uh, the first two sermons were based out of Jonah chapter 1. Now, there are only 10 verses in Jonah chapter 2, so I'm going to read the entire chapter to you to begin with, and then afterwards we'll take a look at the message as it applies to each one of us. Uh, we're in Jonah chapter 2, and I will be reading from the New International Version. Uh, the, the, there's 10 verses, the entire chapter. It says this. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers, they swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now Jonah's story is very simple. Jonah was a child of God who simply ran from his father, specifically his heavenly father. God pursued his child on the wings of a storm. Literally, as he uh, sets sail, a storm comes upon the ship that he is riding in, and the storm is so severe that Jonah ends up being thrown overboard so that God might relent. By the way, the moment Jonah is thrown overboard, the storm, the storm becomes calm, and it is clear that this was the right course. This storm, of course, forced Jonah to reconsider the path which he had chosen. This short book is his record 
of those difficult days. Now, what's interesting is he admits his own fault within the book of Jonah. As he reflected back over those events, he confessed that he felt abandoned by God. He says, I have been banished from your sight. And clearly, this was a moment in time where he seemed to think God had left him. We have a tendency to think during times of crisis that God is distant or somehow removed from us. Perhaps he is indifferent. He doesn't care about the circumstance or the situation which we find ourselves in. Jonah reminds us, though, that God's presence is what enables us to endure the trials that we face, even the ones that are created by our own disobedience, which would have been the case for Jonah. He's the one who put himself in this position. There's a man named Leonard Sweet who tells of an unusual tribal custom that pictures God's presence during our darkest hours. He says this, One tribe of Native Americans had a unique practice for training young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of his family and tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. When he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of thick woods by himself all night long. Every time a twig snapped, he probably visualized a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal howled, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. No doubt... It was a terrifying night for many of these young men. After what seemed like an eternity, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. And looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, and the outline of the path. Then to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was the boy's father. He had been there all night long. Likewise, God never forsakes his children. There may be times of great difficulty where it seems to us as if God is not there. He doesn't care what's going on and we have to fight this battle on our own. Yet God is still standing close by. God never forsakes his children, even though at times we're the ones who put ourselves in those bad situations. As we've been talking about uh, in this series, even when we choose to wander, God's love is continually extended to us. He wants us back. He desires that we be back in a right relationship with him. In our study of Jonah, we've seen that all Christians need to occasionally examine our own spiritual passion to see if we have drifted from God or if we are where we're supposed to be. We also know that God is willing to do whatever it takes to get us back, even if that means allowing a storm to come that not only affects us, but even the people around us like the sailors who were on that ship with Jonah. Now, once we become aware of our need to renew our spiritual passion and return to God, then we must take certain steps to get us back where we need to be. In Jonah's story, we learn how to respond to God's uh, promptings to return to him. I will tell you that of all the messages in this series, this is, in my opinion, the most important one. And here's the reason why. 
I believe today that we live in a culture where many people would love to have an intimate relationship with God. Now, some might contradict that theory, and some would say, well, I think we have a world that doesn't want anything to do with God. But I believe that it's a little bit different than that. I believe most people realize how much we need God, but few of us really know how to get there. It's almost like saying, uh, I want to lose weight, but I don't know how to do it. I want to quit smoking, but I, I don't know how to do it. I want to have that intimate relationship with God, but how do I do it? And the purpose of this message today is simply to give us the tools. We've already talked about the need for it. We need to return to him. There's no question the need is there. How do we get there? How do we truly return to him? In Jonah's experience, we see certain steps that each of us can take to truly experience intimacy with God. Again, the first one is this. Notice what we learn, first of all, from Jonah's confinement. And Chapter 1, verse 17, we're told basically that he is swallowed by a fish. Uh, in, the, in Jonah's record, the prophet writes, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. There's much discussion about the nature of this fish. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it a shark? Uh, it had to be a pretty big fish. Is that even possible? Remember in the first week of this series, we talked about the fact that it is actually possible. And even if it had not been possible normally, we are told that actually the Lord provided. It's as if God prepared a fish just for Jonah. God had put that fish in the right place at the right time. But I'm going to tell you that at this point, I think most of us have a, a, a somewhat twisted view of what the fish was about. For most of us, we kind of look at the fish as being God's tool of correction. It's God's way of punishing Jonah. But the reality is the fish is in no way about punishment. Uh, in fact, I would tell you that the sea itself is God's correction. It's uh, Jonah being thrown into the sea. The fish, on the other hand, actually represents a few other things. First thing that I want you to see is the fish actually represents God's protection for Jonah, a protective haven from the sea. Jonah was in the fish, and the fish represents God's provision for him by protecting him. God intended to use Jonah. While three days and three nights in the fish's belly probably was very inconvenient and uncomfortable, it was something very difficult and painful, God had no intention of killing Jonah with that fish. If God wanted Jonah dead, he could have just left him in the ocean. He didn't have any place he could go. God could have left him there. Although God desired to break Jonah's disobedient will, he wasn't finished with Jonah yet. So actually what he does is he sends a fish to provide protection and safety for Jonah. For that matter, ask yourselves, at what point did the fish swallow Jonah? Did it happen immediately or did some time pass before the fish appeared? Jonah seems to answer that question in the description of these events. Notice the progression of his testimony. And just kind of as you look at the passage in chapter 1, verse 15, the sailors throw him into the sea. However, even though he had confessed that God was the one who did it, he was not yet ready to humble himself. But they throw him into the sea. In chapter 2, verse 3, the waves swept over him. 
Since the sea was not calm, Jonah should have been able to tread water for at least a, a little while. Apparently, Jonah wasn't a very good swimmer either, though. He probably didn't spend a whole lot of time swimming as he was a prophet. He didn't necessarily spend a lot of time on boats. He thought God had banished him in verse 4. He thought that he was all by himself. The water swirls around his neck as he struggles to stay afloat in verse 5. The water overcomes him and he begins to sink in verse 6. He was about to die in verse 7. And just before he dies, that's when God rescues him. How did God rescue him? Through a great fish. We've often looked at Jonah being swallowed by a fish as being God's punishment to him. But actually God was delivering him through that fish. God sent the fish to rescue him from dying. And even in the throes of the consequences of his disobedience, God loves and he rescues Jonah. You know, often the things that we view as God's punishment or correction, God's wrath, often they are the actual things that will bring us to the place where we need to be and they will bring deliverance. I was thinking this morning as I was just kind of preparing about Many examples where I've seen where God has allowed things to take place. And when they take place, we almost look as if, God, how could you do this? God, how could you let this happen? Whether it be a marriage that is falling apart. Yet through that, the husband and the wife both begin to seek God. And God not only redeems the marriage, but he redeems the individual so that now they seek God with all their hearts. Maybe it's a doctor's appointment where the doctor gives you horrible news. And all of a sudden, the life that you seem to control, you recognize that you're not in control at all. And in that moment of crisis, you cry out to God for help, knowing that he is the only one who is able to fix your problem. Often, the things that we face, the troubles that we go through, we mistakenly assume that it's God's wrath and punishment, when in reality it is God's tool to simply help us become the people that he called us to be. The second thing that I want you to see is that the fish also served as a personal transport for Jonah. After three days and three nights in chapter 1, verse 17, God commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground in chapter 2, verse 10. The three days and three nights probably has nothing to do with the speed of the fish, but instead with the time that Jonah needed to empty his sinful heart. God could have put him in the belly of that fish and immediately had him spit out and land on the sea. Now I know that he was a long way probably from shore. They had already cast off all their cargo because they knew their ship was going down. They had to be a good distance away from shore to take such drastic measures. But do you think that if God could provide a fish, that God could also get him to the shore very quickly? Yes, God could. Perhaps the time spent in the belly of that fish was not so much because of how far it was to the shore but more because God wanted to do some things in Jonah's heart. Physically, there needed to be a transport, but the reality is it was Jonah who needed to be transported. I'm talking about Jonah's heart. God had a specific place that he wanted Jonah, and the prophet was in the wrong place. 
the Lord still desired for Jonah to go to Nineveh, so God prepared a way for him to move from the middle of the ocean to the, the dry ground. I will tell you that God has been moving people in so many different ways for so long, it's just amazing to think about. I was reading this week about Martin Luther and his, uh, really his transformation experience. He was a brilliant man. Actually, at the age of 11, he went to law school, which is amazing to even think about. As a young man, this was someone who God's hand was already blessing him. And one night in the middle of a great storm where there was thunder and lightning that was all around him, as a young man, he cried out to God and said, Lord, if you'll save me, if you'll deliver me, I will serve you. He actually becomes a monk afterwards, and eventually he would become a professor, and he would become one of the most influential people in the church today uh, when he took a stance against some of the ungodly practices which existed at that point in the Catholic Church, something called the 95 Theses, where there were 95 objections to some of those practices. But it began with a storm. In a moment of crisis, when there was a difficult situation, God used that to move him from a life that he likely had planned for himself to the life that God had planned for him. Nobody likes going through the storm, but sometimes we need those storms for God to move us from one place to the other. Not just physically move us, but in our hearts move us so that we become obedient to him. The third thing that we see within this fish is that this fish becomes a private sanctuary with the Lord. We read that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. What is a sanctuary? What makes a church auditorium or a prayer closet or even a fish's belly a sanctuary? It is the place where you encounter God. And you can know that you have encountered God when he has your full attention. I'll tell you, a sanctuary is not just a place like this. I know this room has the title sanctuary. But for you, maybe it was at a camp meeting. Maybe it was in your car. Maybe it was in your shower. God's sanctuary can be all kinds of places. It is a place where we meet with God and God begins to work to transform us. Everything else simply becomes a distraction and we fix our eyes on him. And when you enter into his presence, truly enter into his presence, you are changed by his presence. Think of what happened to Jonah when he got in that fish. Inside the fish, Jonah recognized how much he truly needed God. Listen to the desperation in his voice as we're told in verse 2, I cried out for help. I said I have been banished in verse 4. And as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord in verse 7. When he exhausted all hope, that was when God moved in. When he reached a point where he knew he couldn't do this anymore. He's no longer in control. There's no other way. You guys have heard the phrase over and over again. When all else fails, try God. Jonah is the perfect example of that. When he reached a point of complete desperation, that was when he called out to the Lord. That was when he said, God, I need you. Inside the fish, God would strip away 
the wayward prophet, to strip him of both his pride and his prejudice. God would remove all of the spiritual distractions that were present. The whole reason this happened was because he became disobedient. God called him to go to the people of Nineveh, but he didn't want to go. Not because he didn't want to do God's will, but he didn't want to go to those people. He didn't like those people. They were ungodly people, and they weren't Jews. He said, basically, if you're not going to send me to the Jews, I'm not going anywhere. And the end result was he reached a point in disobedience where he was completely broken. And he knew that he needed God. So God stripped him of his pride and his prejudice. Inside the fish, Jonah would actually submit himself to God without reservation. He would reach a point where he would say, God, I still don't know if I like the people of Nineveh. But if you call me to go, I'm going to go. I'm going to be obedient no matter what it is. God, you are my only hope and I need you, so I'll do whatever it is you ask me to do. I'm going to tell you, nobody likes desperation. Everybody would much rather be in a place where you have everything you need and there's plenty to go around and you can even share with everybody else. Nobody likes desperation. But sometimes desperation is the best place for a child of God to be. Because it's in those moments that we turn and often say to God, not my will, but your will be done. In our arrogance, in our plenty, sometimes it's hard to say, God, your will be done. We need to reach that point like Jonah, where we are willing to submit ourselves to him no matter what takes place around us. Jonah got alone with God and the voice of sin and the voice of wanting to be famous and all of the other sounds that he was hearing, they basically became silent. But the voice of God became loud and clear for him. If you have wandered from God and you sense your need to renew your faith, then you need to get alone with him. Maybe for you that means that you need to physically be in a room where nobody else is present. There's a place up here on the uh, SWU campus called the Potter's Place. And it's a place that they've made available to people where basically you can just go and pray and get alone. It's a great opportunity. There's a group of about a dozen of our ladies uh, that are up at Table Rock right now for a retreat. But Table Rock is a great place uh, for people simply to get away and to get alone. Maybe for you, it's going to be in your home. My wife is one of the ones who has been gone this weekend, and I know that there's extra responsibilities with the kids, but that being said, sometimes there's value in just being able to be alone and to be able to seek the Lord. You need to find that place. I will tell you that sometimes you can actually have that intimate one-on-one -on -one time and still have other people around you. This is a, a setting where that can happen. Where simply you know there are other people in the room, yet between you and God, you can speak and listen. And you can interact and have that intimate time with him. I'm going to tell you that if you realize you need to renew things with him, you must begin by getting alone with him. You don't need a dramatic event to take place. You don't have to be in the belly of a fish to be able to reach that point where you come before him. You just need 
to be able to give your focus to him. The second thing that we see is that Jonah uh, also has communion with God. While offering his prayer, Jonah often quoted many of the Psalms. And we don't necessarily see it because he didn't give verses and references and all of that. Uh, But he did quote many of the verses that we find in the book of Psalms. For example, in Jonah chapter 2 verse 3 says, Your billows swept over me. In Psalm 42, verse 7, it says, All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Actually, in the NIV, all the waves and breakers swept over you in Jonah chapter 2. I have been banished in verse 4. In Psalm 31, verse 22, we see that I have been cast out. I, I no longer am present. He engulfed me up to my neck in verse 5. Psalm 69, verse 1 is almost identical. My life was fading away in verse 7. Psalm 147, verse 3, almost identical. To your, temp, to your holy temple is where he prays in verse 7, almost identical to Psalm 18:6. To your worthless idols in verse 8, compare that to Psalm chapter 31, verse 6. And salvation is from the Lord in verse 9, compared to Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Almost everything that Jonah shares comes from God's word. Now what does that matter? Why does it matter that God's word takes such a prominent role? Know this, God often speaks through his word to our hearts. This reminds us of the value of hiding God's word in our hearts during those times of difficulty when things are crashing in around us and things aren't going the way we want them to go. It will be God's word that will actually speak to us and will encourage us and comfort us and sometimes challenge us. It is God's word that we must hide in our hearts so that when those times come, we can be reminded that we do not walk alone, yet instead we walk with the presence of God. God guides our thoughts by his thoughts often through his word. What is a word? It's a physical representation of a thought. And God's word is a physical representation of his thoughts on a level and in a language that we can understand. Jonah's thoughts were incongruent with God's thoughts. In other words, he was thinking one way and God is thinking a completely different way. Yet, as he began to allow God's word to speak through him, he began to recognize he needed to change. Because God's thoughts are higher than his thoughts. God's ways higher than his ways. The word of God guided Jonah to understand and acknowledge God's thoughts about him. God's word also can have a cleansing effect on us. Sometimes when God speaks, it's almost as if immediately we recognize, wow, that's what God wants for me. And it can become a cleansing impact on us. What happens is we recognize the need for change within us and God's word can actually transform us. It becomes almost like a guide to help bring us back to him so that we can truly follow him. Maybe we should look at God's word like a man who was lost in the woods as he would view his compass. Uh, Well over 100 years ago, much of northern Michigan was entirely new country, covered with dense forests. The best woodsmen would was liable to lose his way unless he carried a pocket compass with him. A settler of those days tells this story. 
One day I had been walking in the woods, when though I could not see the sun or sky, I knew by the settling darkness that night was coming on, and started, as I thought, for home. I was so certain of my direction that for some time I did not look at my compass. On doing so, however, I was greatly surprised to find that whereas I thought I was going east, in reality, I was bound due west. Not only was I surprised, but I was so sure of my own judgment and so disgusted with my compass that I raised my arm to throw it away. Then pausing, I thought, you have never lied to me yet, and I'll trust you once more. I followed it, and I came out all right. The Bible, in many ways, is our compass that has guided millions of people to God. Some would throw it away, but those who will follow it will come out safely. I'm going to tell you that God's word will be your tool that will equip you to seek the Lord genuinely. Because it reveals his heart. It's who he is. It's what he desires for you and for me. And we need God's word. The next thing that we see is Jonah's confession. And this will be the last thing that I'll talk about with you this morning. Jonah confesses that, first of all, he is the one who is in need. He recognizes the fact that God is at work, that God is the one who is doing this great work on this occasion. He is the one who has, basically his hand has been all over Jonah's life. The act of ending up in a ship, that's not what God wanted for him, but if that's what it takes to get Jonah to a point of obedience, God will do that to make that happen. You see, God had a plan for Jonah, but he also had a plan for Nineveh. And God was going to use Jonah to help reach the people of Nineveh. But Jonah had to reach a point where he confessed it was God who did the work. Where he admits that I need to turn my eyes back to you. And then what I love about it is he then begins to thank God for his compassion. Understand That when we read in chapter 2, as he is thanking God for delivering, for providing, Jonah is still in the belly of the fish. He is crying out to God with a grateful heart, Lord, you have rescued me. Really? You're still in the belly of a fish. How can you cry out that God has rescued you when here you are, you're still in the middle of your storm? Because he knew that he was no longer alone. See, God was always with him. But in his mind, he felt as though he was by himself. And even though he still had to deal with where he was, he knew that God was still with him. I don't know the challenges that you face, the storms that you're dealing with today. But I do know that God will be with you even as you go through the storms. I know that God will be there to take care of you. And if you really think about it, if God really didn't care, why doesn't God just get rid of you? He hasn't. Know that God's compassion is being extended to you even now. The last thing here is he basically renews his covenant, his commitment to God in verse 9. He promises to him, I will fulfill my vows. We must reach a point where we say to God, 
I'll do whatever you ask. Interesting thing about Jonah is he had made a vow to God before. That's why he's known as a prophet. He was someone who had already committed to go and to bring God's word to the people. He had probably brought God's word to the people on many occasions. We don't hear about other messages. This is his recollection of when God really shows up. Even though he had likely made that commitment before, it was time to renew that commitment because somewhere along the way, he forgot the commitment that he made. He walked away from the commitment that he made. I wonder if within the church there aren't many who would need to do the exact same thing, where we need to simply recommit ourselves to him. A couple of weeks ago, I took my kids for a uh, visit. I have a friend who owns uh, a farm. He's got a bunch of sheep. Um, Right now, I think he's got about 150 sheep. And uh, they had some newborns, so the kids got to hold the sheep and all of that, and it was really cool, and we got pictures. It was was a really good experience for the kids. Uh, But I was talking with the, the guy who owns the sheep. I guess you could call him a shepherd, even though he would not use that term. Um, but uh, he was talking about uh, all of the, the many sheep, and they're spread out over all these fields. And he said, you should see them all together. I said, man, that would be great. I wasn't expecting him to do it, but he turned around and he began to call out for the sheep. Now, there's a busy road that's close by, and there are all these cars that are running by, but I'm telling you, the moment he began to call out to those sheep, they began to run. Because they recognized the sound of the shepherd. It was actually the coolest part about it was to watch them. It was almost like they got into a single file line and each one came running. I don't know if they were thinking he had food or what, but they recognized his voice. All the other noise became secondary and all of these sheep come running to their shepherd. Many of us at times have wandered away from the shepherd, the good shepherd. And what needs to happen is we need to stop and recognize his voice as he calls out to us. And he says, I want you to come to me. I want you to be with me. Maybe some of you guys today need to respond to the voice of the shepherd. I'm going to ask if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, as we come before you, we recognize that you are the good shepherd. You are the one who you have done so much for us. Yet at times we have wandered away from you. You have provided for everything that we have. You have done everything that we needed you to do. You have spoken to us even when we didn't want to listen. You are genuinely the good shepherd. And we know today that you are calling us unto you. Lord, if there be one here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that in this very moment they would confess their sins to you and that they would seek you with all of their heart and they would find redemption. If there be one in here that maybe it's been a long time since they walked and talked with you, They know that the commitments that they made, somewhere along the way, they got left. Maybe today is the day that they need to recommit themselves to you 
knowing that you are calling to them right now. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts right now to truly surrender everything to you. I'm going to ask you as a congregation, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed if you would. Perhaps today you would say, Pastor, I do not have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Either I have never entered into that relationship or I have wandered away from it. And it's time to come back to God. Would you simply raise your hand? I won't embarrass you, but I want to be able to pray specifically for you. Thank you. Put it down. You're good. Anyone else? Father, I pray specifically for the two individuals that just raised their hands. You know all the ways that we have fallen short. You know the fact that there have been many times that we have walked in disobedience, yet your compassion is extended to us now. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness of sins. I pray that in this moment, you would grant us new life in you. Lord, I pray that whatever the storm is that has taken place around us, whatever trials we've had to walk through, I pray that instead of those things being stumbling blocks to us, that instead they would become truly an opportunity for us to be moved into a right place with you. Or do whatever it takes so that we might be the men and women of God that you called us to be. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. At this time, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We don't get to do this every Sunday, but uh, we were actually planning on doing it last week, and due to the weather, we were unable to, so we have moved it to this week. Uh, Pastor Wiggins is going to help me, and just the two of us are going to do it up front. You guys know that occasionally, I enjoy being able to serve each individual, and sometimes we'll have different pastors who will help and will serve at various stations. Uh, today, we're only going to do it down here in front, and I'm going to ask, uh, first of all, uh, understand what the purpose of this is. The purpose of us participating in communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever term you use, the purpose of this is to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We use two common ordinary elements. We use bread and we use grape juice. There's nothing uniquely special about these two things. Bread is something that often we eat at most every meal. Uh, this is grape juice. Probably in the New Testament times, they would have used real wine. Uh, that being said, we use grape juice. I'm going to tell you, even the substance of this is insignificant. It could be Sprite, or it could be Coke, it could be water, it could be tea. Some of you are thinking, I would like tea. Uh, actually, understand, it is not the substance of this that matters. What matters is what it represents. This bread represents the body of Jesus that is broken for us. And as he met with his disciples on the night that he was arrested, he told them that this was going to take place. His body would be broken for them. It was something that was necessary. He said, every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember my body being broken for you. He took wine. He said, this Wine represents my blood that is shed for you. And he said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
He said, every time you drink this, I want you to remember my blood that was shed. Now, I just told you that these elements, the substance of these elements are insignificant. And here's the reason. I think Jesus chose two of the most ordinary elements that would have been present at every single meal on purpose. So that when the disciples or when other Christians sat to eat at any meal and they picked up the bread, they could be reminded that this reminds me, this represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for me. When they picked up a drink, remember wine was something that was used at almost every meal. It ought to remind them this represents the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed for me. It is a privilege for us to be able to celebrate what he did. You say, why do we celebrate the death of Jesus? It's because through the death of Jesus Christ, all of us are given the offer, the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to have the promise of eternal life. That's a great reason to celebrate. If you are a child of God and you have benefited from the sacrifice of Christ, even if you're not a member of this church, we're going to open up communion in a moment, and I would love it if you would join us for that. Typically what we do is people simply come forward. I'm going to ask if you guys, uh, as you guys come, I don't know how you're going to do it from this side, but if y'all would just make sure you come through this way, it'll make it a little bit easier, a little bit less of a, a traffic jam as people are coming through. I'm going to pray over these elements, and then Pastor Wiggins and I will serve you, and we'll open up the, um, the communion table for you to come forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave for us, the body being broken and the blood being shed. As we participate in these elements today, we participate as one body of Christ, knowing that we have been brought together because of your sacrifice. Help us today to truly recognize what your sacrifice means, knowing that because you died, we no longer have to be slaves to sin. We no longer have to deal with the consequences of that sin, but rather we have been given the offer and the promise of eternal life through you, and it's only because of your body which was broken and your blood which was shed. We know these are ordinary elements, but in this moment, help us to recognize and truly appreciate what they represent. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to invite you to come. There'll be some uh, music that'll be playing on the uh, speakers overhead. Come forward and receive the elements.
there anyone else who was unable to come forward and would like for us to bring the elements to them? As Jesus met with his disciples, he shared with them about the body which would be broken and the blood that would be shed. This was in complete contrast to what they anticipated as they prepared for, in many ways, an uprising. They expected Jesus to come and to turn the tides, to overthrow the Romans, to give them the victory and the peace that they so long had waited for. Yet they did not realize that in order for true peace to come, Jesus Christ would have to lay his body down. And it would be broken and his blood would be shed. Today we celebrate the fact that Jesus didn't do things the way they wanted him to do it. Yet we also celebrate that the body which was broken and the blood that was shed was not the end of the story. For three days later there was a resurrection that occurred and Jesus conquered not only sin by becoming the, cruci the crucifixion, the sacrifice, but he also conquered the grave. And because of that, we now have eternal life. I'm telling you, without the body being broken and the blood being shed, there is no hope for us. But because of what he did, there is a reason to celebrate and a reason to rejoice. As Jesus met with his disciples, he took the bread. He said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. He then took the wine and he said, this represents my blood that is shed for you. And without the shedding of my blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But every time you drink this, I want you to remember that I did shed my blood for you. Be reminded of the sacrifice that was given. My blood was shed for you. Every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, once again, we come before you so grateful for your sacrifice, for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, and the hope that we have today because of what you've done. Help us not to simply live in that hope during a church service or during this time of communion, but rather allow that same understanding to go with us every moment of our lives. Help us to walk in your grace and to continually seek you, knowing that you have already paid the price for our redemption. We give you praise today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do apologize for going a few minutes longer than usual, but that being said, what a blessing to be able to celebrate, celebrate Christ and all he has done for us. And that is the purpose of this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Go in peace. If you do not have a church home, we would love to see you again. Thank you for being here today.